commingle, mixing ideas for marketing strategy and tips for professionals. Thank you, everybody who is on for joining us uh, for our, I guess this is our third edition of Commingled, um, the webinar series that ICS Corporation puts on every month. Uh, this month, as the, uh, as the invitation suggested, the information that we sent suggested, uh, October is Cybersecurity Month. So in light of that, we wanted to, uh, uh, to bring you some content around cybersecurity. Uh, we thought it would be a great idea uh, to talk about issues that businesses are presented with uh, in what is really an ever-challenging security landscape, uh, especially with, uh, with the work-from-home situation that everybody is facing right now. Uh, before we get started, just a little bit of housekeeping. Um, the plan is that we will have some time at the end of this, uh, roughly 2.35, 2.40 or so for questions and, and answers from our panelists. Um, you can submit questions. There's a Q&A button on the bottom of your screen. Um, if we see some pressing questions throughout, I can certainly ask them as we go along. Uh, but time permitting, we're going to get to all of the questions and do, do our best to cover everything uh, at the end. Uh, I will caution, please be careful using the chat feature as it may inadvertently go to all attendees um, or to me if you're making a comment about the host here. Um, so, but if you have a question, just hit that Q&A button. Um, so let's get started. Uh, with me today, uh, I have two special guests. Um, I'd like to introduce Bill Meyer. Uh, Bill is the Chief Operating Officer at TeamLogic IT. Uh, TeamLogic provides managed IT services, including cybersecurity compliance and assessments for a wide range of companies uh, uh, of all industries and sizes. So Bill, welcome. Thanks, Thanks for you. Um, also with us is Chris Francis. Chris is a senior sales executive with 360 Advanced, a leading AICPA certified auditor with specialties in network controls and cybersecurity audits. Uh, Chris, also, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dennis. Um, so so let's, uh, let's get started uh, with a, a question for you, Bill. Um, Bill, as I mentioned, TeamLogic works with clients in a wide variety of industries and various sizes in helping to keep their network secure. Um, can you talk for a moment about what your overall opinion is of the approach that businesses take today to the subject of cybersecurity, and how do you see that evolving? Well, I, first thing is I think that uh, more businesses are understanding the benefits of having a strong cybersecurity program. You know, um, people are pretty much aware of the risks, you know, the downtime, uh, the cost of remediation, uh, the idea of having to pay ransomware. Uh, these are pretty scary things. But what people are starting to learn more is that the brand reputation, the loss can actually affect your whole business. Um, you know, imagine having to contact your customers and say that their data might have been stolen from your network. Now, what would that do to your brand reputation? In fact, the biggest change that I've seen this year it's great when we see sales and marketing companies coming up and saying, you know, how can we become compliant? Where can we put this logo on our website? When can we start telling our customers about this? So, you know, from a positive standpoint, you know, the idea that you're not only protecting your environment, but I think a lot of businesses are starting to realize the benefits and the opportunities it opens up for, you know, supporting their existing clients and also uh, getting new clients. 
great. Um, Chris, uh, 360 Advance, you guys administer a variety of compliance assessments for various industries. Um, how would you classify the state of cybersecurity compliance right now? So, and, and it's probably everybody's worst fear. Um, in my opinion, it's a moving target. Um, there's a lot of gray area with compliance. Uh, in, in what I mean by moving target is, you know, we, we focus on 12 to 15 different, what I'll call common standards um, in the information security world. And we'll cover those later on in this. But um, if, if each standard is issuing the same, you know, guidance each year, right? Uh, but at the same time, hackers are continually changing their tactics to breach uh, companies that, that Bill works with or, or even Dennis. Um, you know, those environments will become stale and, and soon enough will become very easy targets for hackers. So um, what I mean by moving target is these, these standards are updating their guidance each year uh, for considerations that either weren't considered in the past or uh, considerations for new technologies that didn't exist in the past. So um, as it continually moves each year, um, compliance programs should, should likely strengthen, strengthen themselves and change themselves so that a hacker can't just kind of watch the traffic on the network and figure out a way to get in. So uh, it's definitely a moving target um, and it should be refreshed uh, annually if possible. Great. Um, Bill, when, when IT managers think about cybersecurity, uh, it, it can sometimes be overwhelming thinking about all the possible threats and it kind of as Chris just hit on it, it's an evolving issue. Um, so there's, and, and there are so many tools out there on the market that can be put in place. Um, but for a company that's starting from scratch, let's say, uh, you know, they're, they're either completely redoing their information technology infrastructure or it's a, a startup business. What are some of the basic tools and controls that any company, regardless of size, should have? Well, as Chris mentioned, <clears throat> this is ongoing. In fact, uh, we like to refer to it as a race without a finish line. So you got to think long term on this. This is going to be part of your business operations forever. Uh, or at least for the foreseeable future. Um, the idea first, I would say, is uh, think about a cybersecurity committee. And it doesn't have to be everyone in IT. They don't have to have an IT background. It's good to get support throughout the business as to why these things are necessary. So take one, two, three people, put them together, um, start them out by meeting once a month. The whole idea of the cybersecurity committee is to evaluate the risks in the business and then work with management to create budgets and put things in place to improve security. And it's a constant evaluation. So that would be a great first step. Um, next, um, in any compliance, one of the first things you need to do is make sure you have good inventories. Inventories of your hardware, inventories of your software, and inventories of where your data is being stored. Especially in today's day and age, you know, with computers all over the place, are you backing up your data? It may not just be in your servers. What about the desktops? Uh, next, obviously, you know, some really basic things that have been out there for a while. Uh, we don't call it antivirus anymore. We call it endpoint protection. You know, we have to protect the endpoints. So invest in a good product. Uh, invest in a product that gives you controls of your devices, no matter where they're located. Not just because they're in your business, but are they at the local coffee shop or are they at somebody's home? So having those tools, being able to control web access, uh, scanning those computers, and having that broad visual from a central console that your systems are protected at the endpoints. They kind of refer to this as like a zero trust network. Um, aside from that, um, basics, and these are all things that don't require extra products, 
but multi-factor authentication. Um, anything where data needs to be secured, uh, email or, or just uh, uh, systems, you've got to look at multi-factor authentication. Right now, it's the only way to protect it, uh, protect that, those environments and that data. Um, aside from that, um, you know, there are basic levels, keeping operating systems up to date with patches. It takes time. You know, there are tools out there that can help manage this. There's companies like ourselves that can do it. So you've got to decide whether this is something within your budget you can do internally and it makes sense, or if you need a third party company that can actually help you with that. Yeah, your, your, your comment about it, about some of the things taking time, it's funny because you know our operation, we're largely a, a 24 seven operation and it, it becomes uh, very difficult to find those windows, whether it's maintenance windows on a network or um, or just even individuals who run those patches uh, a couple of times a week to really stay stay on top of all of those security updates. But it, it's just a commitment that businesses need to make to say, this is this has got to be part of that operation because the, that risk of, ha of being hacked or broken into is just too great. Um, so you're right, it, it, it forces businesses that, um, and in this in this digital world, we've all become 24/7 operations, right? We're we're connected constantly, and we do have to make sure that we we set aside that time and really budget that time on a routine basis to make sure that we're we're getting those updates and patches and maintenance up items taken care of. Um, Chris, the the work that uh, 360 Advanced does, I mentioned that um, uh, you. Uh, you, you do a lot of different types of, of assessments and, and that can also be a little overwhelming with regard to the wide variety of the standards that exist out there that, that you assess companies on. Um, as we at ICS found, your team can really help to guide a client toward the right assessment tools and standards. But can you talk a little bit about those different compliance standard sets and some of the different operating standards and the various assessments that are out there and then talk for a moment about how 360 Advanced can help a company decide what's best for them among all of the options. Absolutely. So it really comes down to understanding your client's goals. Um, there's really three reasons why someone would want to tackle a compliance standard. Um, it's, it's security and due diligence. It's uh, marketing reasons for ROI, um, or it's really just separating yourself away from others. So you know, we need to understand a lot of times, you know, what's your goal? Uh, what kind of data are you gonna have uh, on the network that couldn't that you don't own? It's your client's data. Um, so when you start to think about the types of data you have, we can then narrow down the, the scope of services that would really apply to a given network. And, and a great example is a, a SOC 2 um, versus a, a payment card industry report on compliance um, for credit card data. Um, and if you have credit card data, it's a no-brainer. You're going to go down the payment card industry road. Um, but if you're simply hosting client data, then a SOC 2 would likely be more applicable. So we want to understand really what the reason is that you've reached out to us. Um, we want to understand how you're going to use uh, the quote-unquote certifications. And, and from there, we'll, we'll make you know an advisement as to which direction you should go. That being said, Dennis, most of the time, our clients have already received a mandate from their clients and they're they're in a way chasing their tail to try to figure out how they're gonna comply with this so that they can get that, win this RFP that's due next week. Compliance is a much longer road than, than calling an auditor this week and having it in place next week. 
and, and Bill can attest to that, I am sure. Um, he's, he's helped a lot of companies get prepared for these types of things. Um, but it, it, holistically, it's a program. And it's a program like anything else that should be updated from time to time, as I mentioned earlier. So there's really two ways to go about this. Um, the first, you're gonna say, I need a SOC 2, for instance, and you're gonna get all the requirements you need in place to comply with that SOC 2, and that's all you're gonna worry about. Um, I see this a lot more common in smaller organizations uh, because all they're worried about really is, I have to have this so I can, get, I can win this RFP or I can get this new client. And that's not a bad way to think from a startup perspective because budget's limited most of the time and um, so are resources. So just getting that one you know, notch in the belt for, for having something like that is a good thing. Um, if you were building a program for the long run, uh, I would say that you'd be better off, um, excuse me here, I pop up. You'd be much better off um, doing a risk assessment based on NIST 853 and leveraging those controls into almost any compliance standard that currently exists today. Um, if when you build a program like that, you aren't limited to just having the controls in place for SOC 2. Um, NIST is a very well-known standard um, that, that applies to pretty well any industry. Um, and, and there's also different flavors of NIST um, that, would, that would be more applicable to certain industries. But from a general compliance program, um, doing a risk assessment based on that, and then leveraging controls into a SOC 1, a SOC 2, the, the payment card industry, HIPAA, high trust, ISO 27001, or even government assessments like FISMA and FedRAMP. Um, most of the NIST 853 controls will map directly to these services. And as you, as you can probably tell, when you build in those efficiencies and you already have these things in place, compliance isn't the burden that it's looked at as it is today. Um, and most of the people who see it as a as a real pain in the neck each year are the ones who are, I just need to talk to and that's it. And, and we're just gonna do this over and over and over. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. Having something in place is better than having nothing in place. Um, but the individuals who have implemented a program and leverage from within typically have much more successful engagements. And, and a lot of times are have a lot more robust programs because now they have a, a client over here that's giving them credit card data and they have a client over here that's giving them you know, HIPAA type data and then they in general have a SOC 2 because they're hosting that data for their clients. So um, I guess as you scale the organization, the compliance program should scale with it. And, and that's probably the key thing to, to keep in mind with this answer is um, having a single service as a small organization, not a bad thing, it's a great place to start. But as you mature the organization and the policies and procedures and everything that, that interacts with it through IT and, and HR and operations, um, you'll definitely want to scale the programs so you can leverage from within and, well, as we like to say, um, audit once and report many. So, Bruce, uh, you know, one of the things you mentioned, too, is that so many of our customers, you know, the first thing we ask them, are you held to any compliance standard? And almost all, many of them come back and say, no, we're not. But many of them, all of a sudden, they become surprised because they are actually a business associate of someone that has a compliance standard. And that customer is then holding them to that standard. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you know, all of a sudden you find out that you've got PHI or protected health information and that client of yours wants to know if you're meeting HIPAA compliance as a business associate. The same thing is true with almost any other data, PII, personally identifiable information. You know, once you start having access to your client's data, <clears throat> either remotely or on your network, um, you've got to uphold those standards. 
And those companies are releasing contracts based on people that can prove they are doing that because they are actually being held responsible for the data they're releasing to you. So I think, I think compliance is a, more than just those that have to comply at the first level. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And I can, I can give you a really good example. Um, I can't tell you who the client is, but their client was Microsoft and they went through the complete onboarding process. And at the end of it, let's see this compliance certification. They didn't have it. And they basically couldn't receive a PO until it was put in place. And, and they're, they're in the process of doing so, but it's a, it's a six month timeline. So it's not an overnight kind of thing. And if you're, if you're out there looking for business that requires compliance, um, I like the proactive approach. You, you probably want to start thinking about talking to an auditor and figuring out what you need to do to get things in place so you can start going after those larger RFPs and, and winning bigger accounts. And so the, the, the real life uh, example and, and commercial here for both, both of my guests here is uh, for the last several years, ICS Corporation has gone through the SOC 2 process and the sales team has constantly been badgering me saying, when are we going to be, have our HIPAA certification? When are we going to be HIPAA compliant? And we, we knew all along that we largely were doing the things that, that gave us HIPAA compliance, but it was that process that was so big. Um, this past year, the, the teams at both Team Logic and 360 Advanced uh, did sort of a, a bridge gap analysis between the SOC 2 standards and the HIPAA standards, and we identified that by going through SOC 2, we were doing about 95% of what we had to show for HIPAA. And so we just identified that gap, knocked those things out uh, in terms of showing those controls, and we, we got both certifications done under the same examination period. So there's, there, there's that crossover uh, between many of them, but it allows you to con continue to evolve as a compliant organization across a lot of industries. So. That's been a, a tremendous help to us. And I, I'd like most, to point out, oh, sorry, sorry, Bill. Sorry, I'd, like, I'd like to point out real quick, Dennis, that the controls from SOC 2 were mapped into HIPAA. Um, and, and Dennis's company had about 90% of, of what he needed, uh, as he mentioned. So it's very important to understand that when these compliance standards come out, they aren't the, the wizard of compliance that came up with these specific controls that nobody's ever heard of. A lot of them are very much the same, especially from a physical security standpoint. And um, that's why you are able to leverage from a SOC 2 into HIPAA or a, or a high trust into a SOC 2 or whatever direction you need it to go. Um, just keep in mind, a lot of these controls are very much the same. They're just- Yeah, I was gonna mention that, you know, most compliance standards are built on a NIST standard. And then from there, they have outreaching areas because of the type of um, compliance that it is specific to a certain type of data and how it's being stored and how it's being shared. But overall, the NIST standards are a good um, standard for any business to follow. Um, and it goes into everything from procedures to monitoring to uh, security committees and security compliance officer and just about everything that a business needs to keep its uh, data secure. Great. Um, so Chris, kind of a follow-up on that, businesses go through the audit, SOC 2, HIPAA, um, but if I'm performing due diligence on a vendor that has gone through one of these audited assessments, um, what are, what sort of things should I be looking for when I read that audit report? What what there's there's seventy odd or ninety odd pages long, right, uh, or longer? Um, what what are the highlights of, of what we should be looking for when we do our vendor due diligence? So the first in these reports, there's typically always a, a management assertion letter, 
And I would be looking to see if there were gaps in the report, which should be noted in that area of these reports. So that would be my first thing to look for. Um, sometimes a gap isn't a bad thing. Uh, for instance, if the uh, policy read that, you know, uh, Susie that got fired needed to be locked out in 24 hours, but she was locked out in 48 hours. If I was doing due diligence on a vendor, that probably would not exclude them um, from, from my selections. Um, that's a very low risk type of thing. And, and I don't think that that makes any difference as to whether um, you should select them or not, short of Susie being a crazy hacker and getting into the system you know, that night. But um, you wanna make sure they're doing annual penetration testing at a very minimum um, outside of their, their compliance standard, whatever type of standard they may be complying with. Um, I think it's important to ensure that your vendor have some level of security internal or external uh, via a company like Bills. If you don't have an internal resource for security, um, likely you have on-prem on servers. And if nobody's managing that to a level that's what I would call acceptable, um, then you're at risk there with that vendor. There's automatic risk. Uh, using a company like Bills with, with Team Logic. Um, if you don't have that internal resource, you have someone there who is at least keeping an eye, an eye on the, the network doors and, and making sure that, that those types of things, your hacks can't happen. Um, another thing that I would look for is, are they outsourcing your data to somebody else? That's something important to know. Uh, if you are you know, in, in Dennis's situation, this isn't the case necessarily, but if he's taking in client data and then he uses a, an application in AWS, that's something I would want to know where the data sits. So I would be looking for that information as well. And, and who has access to that data is very important um, to consider as well. Because as, as Bill mentioned, it's, it's all about branding. And if your brand name is that, oh, we were hacked and now our name's all over the news, that's, that's not a direction you want the, the company name to go. So in your security due diligence, definitely make sure that they're complying with the standards that are relevant to your industry. Make sure they're doing an annual penetration test uh, and, and the security questionnaires aren't a bad way to go because um, they typically come with a risk rating. But whether that is, is pertinent or not to you, once you see the certifications of penetration tests and, and hopefully an annual risk assessment, I, I think that that should be sufficient as long as you, the business is comfortable with their processes um, and they, they have some sort, some level of standard that they hold themselves to from a security perspective. So shift gears for a moment, Bill, uh, in March, obviously, almost every company was hit with the unique situation of having to have employees work from home. Um, what are some of the added security concerns that come from a remote work environment? And what are some steps that employees and employers can take to mitigate those risks? So obviously, working from home came pretty quickly for a lot of businesses, you know, Businesses were always used to working behind a firewall within their brick and mortar building. And when you have that firewall, you can kind of like monitor what's going in and out of your business. So the idea of people working from home opens up a wide range of concerns. Um, this again is where you have to protect the endpoints. You have to have software on there um, to be able to monitor the health of those systems. You know, we're talking about possibly, um, hopefully it's your own equipment in the client's home or in the, in the user's home, but what else is on their network? You know, what are their kids doing in the other room? What sites are they going to? Just like within your environment, inside your business, um, everything is kind of connected. The same thing is true at the, at the home. 
Um, endpoint protection software obviously is important. Web filtering. Um, a lot of security monitoring tools are helpful. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of, especially dealing with confidential information of BYOD or bring your own device. Um, might be acceptable for a phone with mobile device management software, but for the home computer, there's too many risks that are out there. You don't know what the computers are being used for, and you don't know if they're properly protected with all the software. You know, re remember that, you know, just one computer not protected in your environment is like leaving the back door of your house open. That all it takes is that one area to get in and, you know, ransomware can be initiated or um, data theft can occur. So working from home brings its challenges. Uh, the other big concern I have is um, the backup of data. Uh, sometimes it's harder to get things to and from the server in the office and more things are stored on a local computer. So what is it that you're doing to back up that information? What are you doing to back up um, your email? Most businesses nowadays use Office 365, but they only retain data for about 30 days. Past that, information is gone. So you've got to think about all your data, where it's at, is it secure, and how is it being backed up? Um, I think, I mean, that, that's a pretty good starting point. Um, I think businesses are going to be watching over the next year as working from home becomes more of the standard about how you manage productivity, uh, what's going on on those systems. Security services and security monitoring, what's happening on those computers, is data being downloaded, how much, is it private? You have to, there's a lot more you have to watch and it's harder to do when your employees are not behind your firewall. Definitely presents a, a lot of unique challenges. Um, and, and it was certainly something that, you know, this time last year, none of us thought, we, we all think about remote access and have VPNs in place, but we didn't consider that 100% of our workforce would be doing that. So um, a lot of changes and, and we, we think about those things as we look at different risk assessments. And you've both talked a little bit about risk assessments being a part of a, an, organizational's, an organization's overall compliance strategy. But Chris, what are, what are some of the new risks that as we sit here in October of 2020, that businesses might need to be aware of and start monitoring looking ahead towards 2021? Well, that's a great question, Dennis. And from a compliance perspective, there really aren't any additional risks outside of pandemic planning, I suppose. Um, nobody was expecting that. But from a compliance perspective, um, as long as you have those remote access controls in place, uh, the compliance standards are, are built for that kind of work. So a lot of our clients have, are 100% digital now and, and everybody works from home. And they're all utilizing, as, as Bill was discussing, the, the VPNs or the the OneDrive systems that are basically cloud operated and you sign into remotely. Um, although it is on your home Wi-Fi network, as long as the configurations are appropriate, um, they wouldn't be able to access those systems. Um, I also mentioned um, mobile device management or MDM. Yes. So any device that leaves the business, you really need to have a product like Intune, which is a Microsoft product, installed on it. You've got to be able to um, control those systems um, you're, you're losing a lot of the controls that a Microsoft domain used to bring with computers inside the business. And Intune is starting to stretch some of those controls for security, passwords, and being able to remotely wipe uh, equipment, um, control users and how they're using the system, what applications are installed. So mobile device management on phones and computers are an important part of that mobile strategy. 
So, so Chris, you, you uttered the word cloud a moment ago, um, which reminded me that one area that I wanted to talk to both of you about and get your opinions on um, is that concept of a cloud-based infrastructure. And uh, when we at ICS go through different security reviews, we, um, we, we host a lot of our clients, or used to host a lot of our clients to come on site and we talk about information security. And one of the, one of the interesting things that I have found is the differing opinions toward cloud-based infrastructure, even within similar companies in the same industries. So we had two large uh, financial services organizations come in for on-site security audits. And one of them uh, made the comment that they were very happy that we did not use a cloud-based infrastructure and the other, um, a, a, a larger company um, made the comment that they were they were internally pushing everything to a cloud infrastructure and were very comfortable with it. So, um, from a cybersecurity perspective, what are the challenges and benefits of a cloud infrastructure versus an on-site? I'll, uh, uh, I'll I'll throw it out to you, Chris, first, and then Bill. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Absolutely. And, and first of all, financial institutions typically are very old school with their computer systems. So I'm not surprised that one of them wasn't very happy about it. Um, but from a auditor's perspective or somebody who sees a lot of startup SaaS service providers, it's all about managing risk. Um, and, and what I mean by that is if you're a service provider and, and you have an application or um, your service provider like Dennis and you're taking on client data that, that you don't own. Um, I think it's important to weigh the risks of, do you want to have that within your four walls or do you want to hire that out to a service provider who, and, and again, this would probably come back to how large the organization is, but let's assume that you're 15 years old, you've got a thousand employees and you know, you're trying to scale your systems. I think an AWS situation is very viable, um, both from a scalability standpoint and from a risk perspective. Uh, any employee could access that at any location, which is great. That makes a big difference. Um, and then if you're small, um, the scalability of it, because we have five-person SaaS-type companies who are, who are doing you know, 100 million a year. It's, it's insane. But it's because AWS can scale that and they can handle the load with five people. Um, so I think it all depends on your business objectives. But if it comes straight down to managing the data risk, then I think it's a very good way to go for your business. Get that data out of, outside of what we'll call your own servers. Um, have a service provider who's responsible for the uptime, the physical security, who has all of their own um, compliance standards. And from a, from a strategy perspective, when you go through your audits, because your service provider will have those audits in place, now you can lean on those reports for part of your own assessments. And, and again, leveraging from within, it makes it all a bit easier and the physical security walkthroughs are now put on the service provider and the uptime is put on the service provider. So there's a lot to consider around the risks of this and how you wanna scale the business. Bill, what are your thoughts there? Well, first, uh, you know, the term cloud's been out there for what, four or five years now. It's pretty popular. Everyone wants to go to the cloud, right? Um, but I think you really need to look at first what you're moving. Um, the cloud can be, for instance, Office 365 is an email program that's in the cloud. Um, the cloud can mean a lot of different things to different people. It could be sharing files. It could actually be moving infrastructure like servers um, and, and, and large amounts of data. 
You can even have virtual desktops in the cloud. So there, each business has to be evaluated based on risks. Um, and you know, do you have a generator? Do you have redundant internet? Getting something into a cloud environment um, provides a little bit better uptime uh, because you're not responsible for mon manner, uh, managing that hardware and keeping power going to it and stuff. Um, so there's a lot of benefits to going to it. It depends on how mobile your workforce is. Um, there's also more risks because once it gets out, as Chris mentions, outside of your environment, it's harder to watch. Uh, Microsoft Office 365 is one of the most attacked platforms on the internet. And it's because you can be anywhere in the world and try to access it and try and log in. <clears throat> as you move more things to the cloud, you really need to start thinking about uh, what's called a SIM server, S-I-E-M or security information and event management system and some security services. There's a lot more that needs to be watched when something is open to the world like that. Um, who is accessing? Who's attempting to access? What country are they trying to uh, access it from? There's a lot of different clues that you need to look at and evaluate to see if that data is at risk. Um, it's a little bit harder to see things in the cloud um, of who's accessing and when. And that 24-7 monitoring with a security service is the way to um, help mitigate some of those risks. So what, I, what I've heard from both of you throughout the last 35 minutes is, is you know, the, the, the sort of common component or common theme is, um, you know, almost any, any structure is doable. You just have to understand what you're doing um, and understand, think about constantly you know, what risks have happened, right? Or, or I'm sorry, what risks can occur with what we're doing? We're putting a new server on, we're installing a new piece of software or, or doing whatever the changes to the infrastructure, does it change any additional risks and what controls can we put in to manage that risk? And that's that sort of constant thinking that a good compliance program uh, can have for, for a business. Um, so, Bill, I'll, I'll, before we go to a couple of questions, I, one final question for you, and this is sort of a favorite topic of mine, that's personal cybersecurity, right? It, it, it blends a little bit with now that most people are working from home, that it enhances our need for personal cybersecurity. But can you share with our audience some of the basic uh, you know, tips or tools that are available you know, to everyday consumers to protect themselves outside of the office? I'll start again with, with, you know, purchase a good endpoint protection software. Uh, it's not only about scanning for viruses, it's also about protecting you from clicking on known bad websites through web filtering. Um, you know, the other uh, benefit you can do too is that, especially if you have multiple computers in your house, you have children, you want some of those parental controls. You wanna be able to block um, certain categories of sites from them going to. Um, you know, the other thing, obviously, um, I mentioned multi-factor authentication. If you're not doing it now, I'm surprised, but you know you really got to think about doing it um, on your personal email accounts, um, but certainly on all your banks. In fact, most of them are requiring it. Anywhere where you've got information you don't want someone to have access to, you've got to have that secondary authentication that it's actually you trying to access the account. So multi-factor authentication would be a great first step. I think the other thing is um, some type of password manager. Um, there's a number of them that are out there. Uh, they actually have family plans right now. So you can create a login to a specific site and then share it with the members of your family. Um, so 
I think that that's a great place. You know, the idea of storing your password list inside your email was never a good idea, but I think people are starting to realize that. You know, when you're sending an email across the internet, um, it can be captured and read by the most average hacker. So don't think that just because it's an email, it's secure. There are add-on tools that you can put on emails to encrypt them. Some of them are built into like Microsoft Office. Um, there are third-party tools that make it a little bit easier sometimes. But overall, you have to encrypt an email in order for it to be secure. That's why your banks will have a separate website with like kind of a fake email account, it looks like, where you're uploading and loading information because you're already protected in how you're connected. It's not really email. So those are some of the things I think that people need to look at. Um, obviously, keeping your Windows updates uh, and Mac updates running on your, your equipment. Um, you know, make sure that you're not dealing with an antiquated operating system. Everyone knows that Windows 7 um, at the beginning of the year uh, was no longer supported by Microsoft. Now those security updates are basically the manufacturer finding security flaws and correcting them. And what they're telling you is that we're no longer watching Windows 7. As new security flaws come up, we're not fixing them. So you really need, you know, everyone needs to be on like a Windows 10 or a current Mac platform uh, to have the best security in place. Great, great stuff. Um, so a couple of a couple of questions. Um, the first one I I think is a, is a simple one. The term NIST was thrown out. Um, what does that stand for? And does anybody have a website I can go to 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 get uh, that information? I don't think you want to. <laughs> to, to read NIST standards um, is challenging. Okay, um, you really need someone to interpret it, interpret it for you and tell you how you can comply. Um, so you can get, just look up NIST, Nat National Institute Standards. I, I'm, I'm wrong on that, Chris. What is that? National Institute? I thought it was National Institute of Science and Technology. Um, it's a, it's a NIST.org, NIST I believe, is the governmental website, and it, it is government-type standards um, for cybersecurity. So I'm sure it makes perfect sense it's a, from the government. <laughs> yeah. You, you can search it. You're going to find a lot of, like, deep numbers as far as different areas and uh, so forth. And the first time you read, like I said, you're going to be overwhelmed. And there are simple ways of complying with the standards. Um, you know, there are policies that are already made and stuff. Uh, so it can be a lot easier than what it looks. But the, the main thing is you have to start. Yeah, you know, you may not have the budget for everything, um, but you ought to start putting money in the budget for cybersecurity. Remember, even if you're not held to a compliance standard, many states are putting things in. What GDPR, GDPR came out with the uh, European Union, um, that protects the, the privacy of individuals and their data and their access to their information and the request for you to delete it. So a lot of those security standards are now in place now in California, the Con California Consumer Privacy Act. New York has the uh, um, Department of Financial Services came out with their standards. Um, and eventually the United States government's gonna come out with one. So, the ideas of having multiple layers of security, monitoring environments, um, and having policies and procedures to protect the privacy of individuals is going to be there for every business. That was actually one of the next questions was about GDPR and the California Consumer Privacy Act and whether or not we, you guys thought uh, they may continue to roll out through the, through the country, uh, whether on a state-by-state state or at a federal level. And I guess a lot of that will depend on the, the next election. But uh, uh, Chris, where do you see 
where do you see various other states um, in terms of adding things like what California did with the CCP? I, I think that it's going to have to become a federal issue because businesses can't switch gears 50 times to comply with specific standards at a state level. So there's going to have to be a, like, like Europe came out with in GDPR, there's going to have to be a national standard that each company is upheld to. Um, and currently there's a much more than just CCPA. Um, if anyone on the, on the panel here is familiar with high trust, there's Texas, there's New York, there's Massachusetts, there's a whole bunch of them that aren't as, you know, household specific that, you know, people hear about on the news for the most part. So there's already a bunch out there. Um, but what, what I can tell you is the challenges that people are facing is, you know, if they're doing business in 20 different states and they've got basically 20 different, you know, things they have to comply with that have their own subsidy requirements that could be a hundred requirements each, it's, it, it ends up being a, a load of work and a, and a load of things that in the end, if, if the federal level would just come out with some sort of guidance, I think that it could be accomplished. Um, you know, GDPR was, is an interesting one because companies all over the world were complying with it because the, the rule is if you have European resident data on your systems, you have to comply. Um, you know, that, that to me might be a little bit of a stretch, but people got in line and they did it. Um, CCPA isn't quite as uh, outreaching. Um, there's, there's three specific requirements and I won't get into that at the moment, but um, for the most part, if you aren't doing business in California, you don't own the data, you don't really need to comply with CCPA, but there are circumstances where you would need to. So again, I, I think it goes back to the federal level and, and they should come out with some form of GDPR for the US. I think that you know, the other thing is that uh, some of these standards, compliance standards, are coming with teeth, meaning fines. So much like HIPAA uh, that has associated fines with breaches, GDPR does as well. So, and as Chris mentioned, if you have clients um, that are citizens of the EU um, and you have their data on your system, then you have to be held to that same compliance standard. So, you know, and the other thing to think about too with HIPAA, if you're dealing with healthcare information, when you sign that HIPAA business associate agreement, meaning that you have access to PHI or protected health information, you are, um, you are liable for all the same fines, penalties um, as the covered entity, meaning that hospital, doctor's office, healthcare provider, um, as, as them. So there's a lot of risk with this. Um, and you know, you can, you know, you don't want to scare people into compliance. I don't like that tactic, but there is risks and each business has to weigh out. Uh, the, the fines, the, the, the loss of the business name in, in, their, in their area. Um, you know, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of risk involved with this and that has to be evaluated. Uh, so it looks like one last, one last question. Um, it's because our, uh, I received an email from my bank asking that I reset my password and their address seems or looks different or fishy uh, and I ignore it. Is this really a standard practice for banks? Mm -hmm. can, I, can I take that for a second? You know, we an important part, Chris, and something we recommend to every one of our clients, and that's cybersecurity training. So, um, you know, you can put all the layers of protection in that you want, and if your staff let in the bad guy, um, you're done. And that ransomware is going to run, the data is going to be stolen, whatever the case may be. 
So cybersecurity training and, and recognizing what is a phishing email is an important part of every security strategy. Um, anytime you get an email, you got to consider it su suspect. It sounds like they looked at the specific address and that's a great way to start. The biggest thing that you can do though is never click on the links in the email that come, came, it came from because these things look very real. It may look like your credit card. It may look like your bank. And all they're doing is collecting the information. So if you have concerns, don't go through that email. Go to you, the, your link on, in your browser, your favorites. Go to the one that you know is actually your bank, your credit card, log in. And if you have questions, submit a question to that company and say, is this real? Um, and I'll tell you that even um, the most astute network engineers, including myself, um, have come close to doing the wrong thing. It's, it's, this, this is very professional. They put a lot of time and effort into it, and it's very dangerous. And you'll give them the keys to your kingdom. Yeah, those, the, those scams get, have gotten very, very sophisticated over the years. So uh, it's, um, it, it, it is important. It's something that we go through every year with all of our employees to make sure. It's a big, that cybersecurity training and, and social engineering type, uh, type of content is, uh, is a real big, real big part of that. So part of, part of that training is also phishing campaigns. Yeah. So that one of the best ways you can tell how good or bad your staff are or by putting out fake phishing attempts and seeing if they open the email. Do they open the attachment? How far do they go? Uh, that's going to bring out some of your vulnerabilities. And, you know, you can go back to them and tell them, you know, share some of the statistics. No one wants to be up on that board. Uh, but it's a great way of seeing if, you know, you've got weaknesses within your staff that you need to address. Yep. So I think I think that's it. Uh, I don't see any other questions. Uh, Bill, Chris, thank you very much for sharing uh, so much great information for your time this afternoon to all of our attendees listening. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. I hope it was worthwhile. We will be uh, putting this out on our YouTube channel for ICS. Uh, so I hope you can share it and uh, with your family, your friends, your coworkers, uh, and keep making sure that we're all protecting ourselves at home and work. Bill, Chris, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Take care. That concludes this episode of Commingled. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back next month with a brand new episode. Stay connected with us on LinkedIn and YouTube so you don't miss out on any updates. Take care, everyone.